0: Today, I'm here with Nile of nocode.tech and Concrete Capital. Nile and I don't know each other at all. Let's get into it. Let's change that. Sounds good. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Why don't you give me a rundown of what you're working on? Because I know we were chatting back and forth, and you said you're about six months ahead of us. So I'm very eager to hear what's around the corner for us because right now I feel like I'm sitting in the middle of a dumpster fire and it's just chaos all around me, and I'm hoping that calms down in a couple of months. <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, that, that sounds about right. That, that's what it's been like for me for as long as I can remember now. So I guess like in, in terms of how I got into micro private equity and what I'm doing now, for the last few years, I've had a, a kind of corporate career, worked for a bank, etc. And I'd done a little bit of kind of startups and stuff before that. But uh, yeah, for the last kind of, Five years up until a couple of months ago, I was kind of full-time uh, consulting, uh, working in corporate, doing all those kind of things. And I'd been trying to start-ups on the side quite a few times, and, and quite often I would you know come up with an idea, try and get a lot of traction on it, and then take it from there and uh, i don't know if it was maybe i don't know if i had this realization it was a realization somewhere around 2018 where i kind of i read a few things out there by people like justin Miles, uh, ryan culp etc just this kind of term micro private equity was starting to emerge and and i had this idea of instead of starting companies i'm already trying to do a full-time job why don't i just buy them and grow them because to be honest the growth bit is a bit that i enjoy a little bit more anyway as much as i love coming up with ideas and I love growing ideas. I don't like that a bit in the middle where you're like, will anyone pay for this idea? Or, How do I do it, Etc. Do I really want to spend six months building this, et cetera? Yeah, I dipped my toe in the water. I bought a couple of companies. One of them uh, was nocode.tech that you mentioned. One of them was Adam Network. And, and the reason I say I was six months or a year or whatever it may have been ahead of you is when I read, I don't know if it should blog or your newsletter, uh, fairly recently, but I read it and you guys were talking about Things like it's quite difficult to juggle several projects at once and all that kind of thing. And that has absolutely been my experience. One so nocode.tech is is easily the most prolific project I'm working on at the minute. It's a massive no-code site. It's got education, it's got tools, etc. Ranks number one in Google for no code, tons of other terms. It's doing pretty well. And I thought at the time I was going to buy that and just have it for a few months, stick some sort of course on it and it would make money. Actually, I ended up buying it just as no code took off as a term in 2018 and that sort of brought its own challenges. So yeah, when I when I kind of say I feel I'm a little bit ahead of you. A lot of the problems that you're running into now are, are definitely ones that I felt kind of 2019, 2020.
0: Yeah, and in terms of no code.tech, I, I can't tell exactly what this is, but it's like a kind of an education site. Almost, what's that guy who has Ben Tossel, MakerPad? Exactly. Yeah. It's almost like a MakerPad competitor.
1: Yeah, pretty pretty similar. We brought out education really recently up until now. It's been primarily people come to the website, they find a tool that they want, they click out, we make some revenue based on that. Not quite affiliates, but something similar. And then, yeah, recently decided to actually turn it into an education site, which does pretty much bring it into direct competition with MakerPad and no-code MBA companies like that, you know.
0: And when you bought it, because I look at this and I think, are you a developer yourself? Do you code? Yes, Sweet. Okay. Because when I look at this, and I think content, I come back to one of the stories of one of our partners who he's in private equity. And naively, he's like, he went to like Flippa or something, and he bought a content site. And it was like, very clearly, you could see the traffic just like slowly dying. And he bought it thinking like, Oh, great, I can juice this for a couple months, make my money back and a little bit of profit and dip my toe in the water. And Google made an update and it went to like straight up zero (laughs) like very quickly and he lost everything. So I look at these content sites and I think, man, A, it's a lot of work. Like who's doing all of this content stuff? Do you have a team that's doing this for you? Are you outsourcing it? How is that working?
1: Yeah, so that that's essentially been a, a pretty big challenge. So in terms of how it works at the minute, uh, myself, I, I've got one employee between us. We do a lot of the work. We also work with a content agency, and then we make use of a ton of automation to to make the content come to life, to collect data, etc. As well, it's always been upkeep, and it's not just upkeep of the content; it's upkeep of how people discover the content on-site, how they then uh, are off-site, how they then navigate to on-site, etc. And there's always been this kind of tension between, is this just a, a content site that I'm going to throw a crappy product on and, and we'll go from there? Or actually, you know, do we have a massive opportunity, right? We're number one for no-code on Google in the middle of this massive no-code trend. Actually, is there an opportunity here to build a bigger company? And that's been a little bit of a journey here where at the very, very start, It was just a quick, yeah, let's throw some content on here, get a product on it. And actually now it's become, you know, more or less a full-time focus.
0: Interesting. Yeah. So you bought, like I have, you've bought yourself a job.
1: Exactly.
0: Yeah. I bought myself (laughs) several. Several jobs. Exactly. Yeah. We've bought ourselves three jobs, but let's take a step back and go into just your overall portfolio. It sounds, and frankly, this happens, I used to work at Adventure Studio. And this happened with us too. It's like in any pool of, in any batch of companies or or whatever, where there's competition involved, some are going to win and some are going to lose. And the tendency is to take the winners, run with them and just kill the losers. Mm -hmm. And I naively, perhaps at the beginning of this, I was looking at micro private equity and buying stuff with cash flow already as a way to mitigate that. So like maybe my thinking was back then, maybe micro acquisitions are not subject to power laws. Right. If you're buying something that's already working, there's no guessing. You should be able to do some kind of better prediction than you could with a company making zero versus making, I don't know, five, 10K in MRR a month. Um, you should be able to predict like some kind of growth rate. But I, I don't know that's the case. It, it may turn out actually that even in a portfolio of profitable companies, you have power laws too there where there's just inevitably one that kind of takes off and their growth rate is. We have one right now in our portfolio too. It's We get like 100 users a day that sign up for that thing. And it's still running on this like single digital ocean instance. It's 20 bucks a month to run the whole. It's like the most profitable, highly growing product we have. And yeah, then we have some that are just like struggling. They get a couple users a day. We can hold it for three years and make our money back in a good profit, maybe uh, double it. But it's going to take a while.
1: Yeah, I think this is the thing that's interesting about micro private equity. Uh, there's a few things here. I think ultimately we all we badge all the different ways of doing micro private equity under that single term at the minute, but almost they can be very different. So I, the way I've approached it is twofold. Number one, so I own two companies at the minute, and I bought both of them pretty low prices. One of them four figures, high four figures, uh, and the other one uh, quite low, five figures. So nothing absolutely huge. I'm not dropping six figures here, however. It's also just me. I've got an employee in each company, not like an operator more for a specific task relevant to each company. But what I don't have is I'm not a team of people. I'm not sitting here with a big checkbook buying five companies at once and going, okay, if one or two of them works, but if the other ones don't, you know, too bad. Um, And actually, both of those things uh, can be considered micro private equity, but they're quite different journeys. It's like what you said earlier, I've essentially bought a job because I had to make a bit of a decision point and I made it when lockdown started last year, where I was, there's two ways to run these companies. I can either run them as somebody who's running two companies, giving them equal attention, equal growth, or I can kind of say, right, I've got that one company there, it's churning the lawn, it's growing very, very slowly. Could it be a lot more if I put effort into it? Absolutely. But actually I've got this no code company here and it looks like that could potentially be a massive company. Do I go all in on that? And if I was a bigger private equity outlet, I probably wouldn't make that decision. I'd probably just say, I bet it's a bet, I've got several of them, and that's it. It's a different, several things that are different risk, et cetera. But essentially, I'm now in this kind of weird place where I've picked one company to do the full-time gig. And so as much as it started out as this attempt at micro private equity, in some ways, the second company has become sort of a side project again and i sort of my, my vision for the future no code grows to a point where it doesn't require it to be a full-time job for me anymore or it sells or something like that whatever it might be and as a result i always default back to that private equity and the future if i think about okay this is a full-time job but how do i grow wealth longer term it is more back to that sort of genuine private equity model you know
0: yeah the there's a couple of things i thought uh Unpack there. The first, maybe it's, we're trying to bootstrap a private equity company, which is like objectively a stupid thing to do, right? Like it's, that's a very hard task. So it's no surprise that both of us are getting stuck operating these things that we didn't initially anticipate we would actually be operating because for us, we have four people in our our buying. None of us are on it full time. And I think that right now we're taking a look at at what it would look like to find an operator for each company. So we've obviously stepped in and we're frankly, it's like each one of these projects, we buy it, the code kind of sucks. So like, it's definitely not going to scale. So there's a huge engineering effort. It's not actually enough cash flow to like, sometimes even hire like upwork people so we have to do some of it ourselves a lot of it ourselves i should say one of them we bought was six figures so there's a little bit of more cash flow to be able to hire like a developer from india <laughs> right like we've leveled up to that point which is nice but still a lot of overhead in terms of project management we have to really look at the code so that we don't get end up in a worse spot than we're already in but yeah, I think that the model for us, if we can figure it out, is to, A, this initial portfolio, like we bought three just with our own cash to prove a model. And I think later this year, we're going we're gonna to raise a fund to try and move up stack, like a million dollar fund where we may even just buy one, to be honest with you. Because if you buy, let's say it's a million and you get 200 grand of cash flow-ish, I don't know if we can get that in this market, but I don't know. Let's just make that assumption. At least with 200 grand, you're like, okay, I could find... I could find some local kind of recent graduate or some, something, somebody super hungry, put them in as like a junior CEO and have them just go execute all day, every day on this one product and have us run traffic interference in the background. So it's almost like we're going to be going from 100% we're operating it to a, a kind of junior CEO where we're like very involved still, like overseeing almost every detail, but we don't have to spend our execution hours against each particular property and then eventually, if we can take that $1 million fund and bootstrap it into a five, ten $10 million fund after you know, we show some kind of success, then we get out of these problems. But I don't know how to solve them in kind of this like true micro SaaS where you're talking about like under six figures or right around six figure acquisitions. It's just tough. There's just not that much cash flow to kick off. Like I think we initially thought. We would buy. Great, there's cash flow. We can do all this fun stuff with cash flow. We're gonna be like Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. Just, just shit's gonna be kicking off cash flow, and be like we're just gonna be buying other stuff with that cash flow. It's no, you're giving most of that cash flow to like uh, developers or fucking Heroku or you know AWS or something like that. There's 80 bucks left over at the end of the month, and you're like, okay, I'm not gonna take a 20 dollar distribution. That's stupid. Um, but yeah, it's a tough spot.
1: Yeah, I, I, totally, I think first of all, a big lesson learned for me is I wouldn't buy another company without also having a, a percentage of the capital allocated to hiring someone for at least the first year to run it. And that's not even going into doing as a developer, etc. Literally, it's okay, this is your problem. Now I'm going to pay you for that to be your problem. But you're the operator. That's definitely a big lesson. Because I think otherwise, yeah, you're absolutely um you're buying a job. It's the same as, I don't know, going out and starting a cafe or something like that, where it's this kind of thing that's just, there are so many things going on that you have to be intensely all over it. A big learning for me is, okay, if I think I can afford, let's say 100k, I'm actually going to only buy a company for 50 because I'll spend the other 50 hiring someone, whatever it might be. I think the interesting thing here is, and and I have a few thoughts on the engineering side, but the interesting thing here is, There's a bit of a pool of thought in micro private equity of should these be treated like companies and and what is should you be in there as a founder sort of personality thinking about all aspects trying to look for unique strategies unique playbooks for each company or do you need to find a way to commodify or do you need to find a way for it to be like real estate doesn't matter where you buy real estate you can flip it you can rent it you can put a new bathroom in etc and there's a thought process in my head of how do you find a cohort of companies that are worth buying, where you can apply fairly standardised playbook. I can just buy this and say I'm just going to throw paid ads at this, and it'll work or it won't work. Or buying a company where there is a growth channel that's working, and, and obviously those are hard to acquire. Buying a company where there is a growth channel that's working, but you can simply put a lot more fuel in the fire than someone else can, which of course then brings you back to well, why don't you join do an Angel or something like that, etc. But I think the I think there's just this tension between we as people in the micro private equity space would really like there to be a real estate type approach to this where you can take a commodified playbook. And then that is sort of balanced against, yeah, I just don't know if that's possible with a company. I don't know if the, the complexity is too high, you know?
0: Yeah, I was, all will abstract the names because I haven't gotten their permission to, to share some of these things, but I was talking to I've just been investigating how the bigger guys do it, right? Like how does SureSwift do it? How do some of these other guys do it? How does Tiny Capital do it? And somebody mentioned that their playbook for after they acquire it is like, A, one, I got the sense that on the smaller side, unless the company can support an engineering team, the actual private equity firms themselves haven't really solved any kind of engineering problems, meaning there's no real shared resources between companies like we bought each product had a different coding language, which is just in hindsight, just obviously stupid, but they haven't really solved the engineering problem in the sense that they're going to have to move up stack almost by definition, because they're going to need to use the money, the cash flow or whatever additional capital to do to pay for engineering. On the growth side, though, what I did find encouraging was that they said that the, 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 most of the time their playbook is just very obvious levers, right? What is conversion? Is that an industry standard conversion? If not, right, this is like a flow chart, then we're working on conversion until that number comes up. Okay, what's next? Does our Google ads like revenue positive for us? Can we make our money? Can we make our money back doing those things? Yes or no? Okay, do the same thing for LinkedIn. Do the same thing for Facebook. Does cold email work? Right. All of those kinds of things are, are in my mind. It was, you know, I always joke that I only have like mediocre revelations these days. But that was like one of the more profound mediocre revelations that these guys are just, even at the bigger scale, pulling on very obvious levers. And one thing that I do think, I know it's easy to get bogged down, oh, do we buy it or do we build it even at this small? When we're buying stuff, we have one product that was like an X Y C company. And what's great is that, that motherfucker gets traffic. It gets 200 people a day. And I, have, I have stuff to go play with. I have data to go manipulate and change and try and run experiments. Because the real problem for me when I go to build stuff is you don't know if it's gonna work for sometimes a year. Like I got super lucky recently with a product I service that's like a small marketing agency. And again, naively I thought, oh great, we'll buy these companies. I'll run them through like my growth marketing agency and boom, money will will fall from the sky. And of course, like we haven't even gotten a chance to test that thesis out yet because we've just been like solving fires on the engineering side, just trying to keep like servers up and moving it to a real production, like high availability stuff. But yeah, that was, that was I don't know. I took it to heart, and that they were just pulling on very obvious levers to get growth. So I think that you're right. I think that there is a kind of playbook that could be copied relatively simply. I don't know that you could full-on outsourced executive assistant from the Philippines run growth for an entire like company making a few thousand a month. I don't know if it's that replicable, but it didn't seem like too far off from that.
1: Yeah, and and I think that's ultimately that's a yeah. You've always got to look for for obvious levers and quite often they're there. Whenever I've looked at a company before I've even approached, I always try and have five or ten different things, um, even if only two or three of them were really the ones I would do, but five or ten different things that I would go for. But I think the tricky bit with it is unlike a different investment, like I if I have a house right, other than buying a house that ends up being a total wreck, right? You've got to go right back to the walls. Um it can only go so wrong okay if i need to go in and do the bathrooms maybe i've also got to do the pipes but then that's it. whereas with a company it might be okay conversion's not working okay that's because the positioning's not right but actually it's not the position's not right it's that we're sending the wrong customer and then suddenly you just go right you know if you if you buy their own business and go down that rabbit hole you've suddenly is that a solvable problem absolutely but can you solve five of those at the same time that's a bit harder it's a bit more expensive it's that we just keep pulling and one of the things that and this, I don't know if this is maybe controversial on Twitter, MPE, Silicon Valley type circles, etc. But I just don't think I would buy a company for the engineering ever again. I think if I was ever to buy a company now, I would go in with the assumption that. I'm going to throw out all the tech and all I want is the existing brand, the existing distribution, et cetera. And actually I would even go a step further and say the next company that I'm likely to buy will simply be something that adds more distribution to the existing companies that I have. When I look at engineering problems, you, you've You've mentioned a lot of them, but take any engineer who actually likes editing someone else's code? Nobody. No, so you've got to go and you've got to understand it. You end up reworking bits of it. And then suddenly it's like, I, again, I'll go back to the house analogy. Anytime you do a renovation, you change one thing and then you look, oh, I've got to paint this while well. i got to do this. And, and suddenly one task turns into three. And I think it's so easy to do that when you're buying tech for the tech and I think obviously I run a no code so I've got to say this, but I do think tech is becoming a lot more commodified. There are now a lot more people who can build things, but there are still a massive dirge of people who can grow and and market them and sell them.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. The hard part though is with some of these products, it's actually way harder to like if you're buying something, say it's a pure SaaS product, you're buying something it has users. Building against even if you're even if you're replatforming say like changing programming languages and writing it in like the stack that you prefer doing a migration against something that already has existing users that really don't want any downtime at all It's such a harder problem than just going almost going from scratch because you're starting from scratch, but you also have these really weird constraints about like how somebody else organized the database. And frankly, even for the ones that we rewrote, we didn't get around. It was just going to be too painful to like do a total like restructure of the database and all that shit. It was like, uh, fuck it. We'll just whatever. We're going to make it as good as we can get it. It's fine. And then move on. But you're right. Maybe it's the case that I I know the move that in five, 10 years, when the tech catches up, the no code tech catches up, the move is going to take a product buy a product that was unprofitable with five engineers, rebuild it in no code, and it will be profitable with one no code engineer, citizen developer, or whatever the fuck they're going to call themselves five years from now. That will be the move. And that's going to work great. I don't know. I don't have a confidence level that I could take, for example, um, Toybox, which does like bug reporting feedback. Like that is a Chrome extension back end front end. Back end front end, I think could maybe get on like a bubble. I worry about, I don't know where the ceiling is for that stuff. That's where my comfort level with no code ends is I'm totally cool with it as an MVP, but I'm totally uncool with it the second that it's done and I have scaling problems. I just immediately regret and I'm like, fuck, I wish I just would have spent the extra two weeks to build it in code. But obviously over time, that's going to move up to the point where it's just not an issue anymore. But I don't know, that would be a cool move to think about is maybe we just take this new rewrite that we have to do, which I mean, that's very real. We're like going out and getting specs for a full cart rewrite, and also just get one from a bubble developer and say, Hey, what could you do? What could you do in bubble today in three weeks? Right. That would be, that would be pretty sweet.
1: Yeah, and and I think I think that is going to be a lot closer than five years. Uh, uh, so I, you know, you can you can argue all day about the the scaling of stuff. Where I find a problem with no code is, it's not at scale to handle X number of users or anything like that. But it's how many little compromises do you need to make? How many little daft things here and there? Have you got to compromise within a tool? You know, Webflow, uh, so we use the WAM stacks, so Webflow, your table member stack, Zapier, for nocode.tech. And I've been up till about three in the morning, the last three nights, uh, working on a big kind of uh, re-platform for some of the stuff. And it's just little things that, that, that can be difficult on a tool like that. For example, if I want to filter something by name, I can't I can't say this name includes these letters. I've got to say it's either this word or that. It's just silly little things like that. Now not every tool has those restrictions or those problems, but i think the difficulty is i i work in no code tools every day i talk about them every day i've used no code for eight years so i can easily look at, at more software and say that can be done in no code or it can or it can but it's going to have a massive caveat or whatever yeah. and that's just a skill i've learned i'm not sure how easily it comes to other people maybe it doesn't so i look at a lot of these now and i go yeah i could definitely do that without code or i definitely couldn't the, the way i kind of think about it i looked at acquiring a product in 2020 at one point and i just pictured myself like sitting for the first time, downloading the code, trying to get it up and running again, trying to make it work on my machine. And I just thought, that's not what I want to do. I really just don't want to do that. Maybe in the future, I'll I'll hire someone to take care of that. But yeah, I just think for me, really the absolute ideal purchase is and this is an obvious thing again kind of like you said earlier with obvious revelations the most ideal purchase for me is a product that is as little as possible and i'd like to buy a newsletter that's got a big audience and income of course who wouldn't right but i just want to have the least exposure to tech possible now because to me it just feels like it's such a cost center you know don't mind having exposure to a complicated marketing framework because there's so much I can optimise there to make more money or whatever it might be. But tech's just a nightmare. And I say this as I've been coding now for 15 years, something like that. So
0: I don't disagree. I don't disagree. This was a great conversation. We're coming up on time. I think two of the things I didn't get to is maybe we'll do a round two. One, liquidity on the sell side. I would just be curious to get your opinion next time. And then also too, I just love the idea of having, I don't know what you'd call it, but no-code tech is like your anchor product and you're going to start building. It's almost like a quasi roll-up strategy around it. Like how do I get, how do I make the, like the mothership, your no-code tech bigger, right? By Mm -hmm. acquisition, which is a very tried and true playbook. And like, accountants have been doing that shit since 1492 buying the competition and rolling it up into one big entity whereas for us i don't think that we've found that yet we've bought three quite disparate products that that don't really have anything to do with each other which is just a different kind of strategy but i think we'll have to get to that next time but thanks so much for your time now and it's actually really great meeting you thanks for chatting
1: i appreciate it thanks so much we'll speak again soon
0: right on